Prices of Trade and Investment from China. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the end of the week, Friday the 27th of November. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong and this is Money Talk on Radio 3. In a speech yesterday articulating the Biden administration's policy towards China, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Washington will stay focused on China as the most serious threat to the international order. He said China was the only country with the intent and capabilities to reshape the international order and that it was doing so in a way that would undermine global stability. Mr Blinken added, Beijing's defence of President Putin's war to erase Ukraine's sovereignty and secure a sphere of influence in Europe should raise alarm bells for all of us who call the Indo-Pacific region home. The Shenzhen government will subsidise local consumers for their qualified purchase of electric vehicles, computers, smartphones and wearables to boost the economy. New qualified EV buyers will enjoy up to 10,000 yuan, that's about 1,500 US dollars of subsidies each. Residents will also enjoy a 15% subsidy on consumer electronics, including phones and PCs, up to a limit of 2,000 yuan. The Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce on Thursday appealed against the pay rises recommended of up to 7.26% for civil servants, saying they don't reflect the current economic climate. It's said to be discussing such a scale of pay increases at this time is out of touch with reality. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management and David Friedland from Interactive Brokers. Speaking about this year's Community Business Awards, it's Peter Sargent, Chief Executive Officer at Community Business. On Wall Street on Thursday, U.S. stocks rallied as investors were encouraged by strong earnings from domestic retailers Macy's and Dollar Tree, easing some concerns that consumer spending has slowed. All three major indices are up on the week so far. The S&P 500 is on track to end a seven-week losing streak. That's the longest since March 2001, rising 2% yesterday to 4,058. The Dow is up for the fifth session in a row, adding 517 points or 1.6% to end the day at 32,637. The Nasdaq Composite Index surged 2.7% to 11,741. Shares of Macy's surged over 19%, while Dollar Tree soared almost 22%. Airline stocks also rallied after U.S. carriers Southwest Airlines and JetBlue Airways raised their guidance for the second quarter. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 0.3%. London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.6%. Shares of UK retailers jumped on Thursday on the expectation that consumers would spend more in shops after the UK government launched a £15 billion package to help households pay for high energy bills. Here in Hong Kong, stocks ended the day lower on Thursday. The Hang Seng Index fell a third of a percent, or 55 points, to 20,116. The Tech Index fell 0.2%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite climbed half a percent to 3,123 after Premier Li Keqiang said the government will unveil a package of policies to stabilise the economy by the end of May. 
Chinese port operators and shipping firms rallied in Hong Kong after China's Ministry of Transport said daily con- container throughput in the port of Shanghai recovered to over 95% of normal level. Shares of Xiamen Port surged 27%. Rijiao Port Zhuong jumped almost 10%, while Orient Overseas was up 3.6%. And after the close, Alibaba reported the slowest revenue growth on record. But its cloud business did make a profit for the first time. Revenues rose to 204 billion yuan, that's about 32.2 billion US dollars for the quarter, beating estimates. The net loss was worse than consensus forecasts, widening to 16 and a quarter billion yuan, that's about 2.4 billion US dollars, compared with 5.48 billion yuan a year earlier. Adjusted profit fell 24% year on year to 20 billion yuan during the quarter. Alibaba's Hong Kong listed shares fell 1.5% ahead of the release of the results. And in New York, Alibaba's ADRs jumped almost 15% higher. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is up 3%. It's at $117.11 a barrel this morning. Gold is down slightly at $1,852 an ounce. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield is down one basis point at 2.74%, and the U.S. dollar is lower. The euro is trading at $1.7 and a quarter cents. The Japanese yen is at 127. Sterling is worth $1.26 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 90 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan weakened to 6.76 and a half against the U.S. dollar, and Bitcoin is down to $29,300. And you won't be surprised if I tell you that Asian stock markets have all rallied at the open uh, this morning. Uh, In Australia, the ASX 200 is up 1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up about 1.25%. The Cosby in South Korea also up. That's rallied 1.1% shortly after the open. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 460 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Let's welcome our guests. Still trapped in London is Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Almost right. I'm actually in Vienna right now when it is 2 o'clock in the morning and I'll do anything to be with RTHK. You know that. (laughs) And we do appreciate your efforts, Andrew. Over in our Queensway studio, we find David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific and Interactive Brokers. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Let's start with uh, President Li Keqing's speech uh, yesterday. Further details are emerging of this national-level virtual meeting on economic stabilization measures for China. It was attended by Vice Premiers Lu He and Hang Zheng. PBOC Governor Yi Gang was there. And there was almost 100,000 local officials from the various provinces. It was carried live by state TV. Uh, President Lee, Premier Lee, warned that China's economy is in danger of slipping out of the reasonable range. He added that once outside that range, it's going to be very difficult to pull it back without paying a huge price. And it will take a longer time. And he revealed in the online meeting that there had been a significant decline in economic indices with many hitting record lows. He said, we'll try to make sure the economy grows in the second quarter and added we cannot accept GDP growth below 3%. He said this is not a high target and a far cry, though, from our 5.5% goal. Um, Andrew, first of all, 
This is quite astonishing in many ways, isn't it? There hasn't been a meeting of this scale for many, many years, and it, it is quite unprecedented for one meeting to address so many uh, levels of government at once. What, what do you make of it? Well, there are two things here. One is refreshing to see the Chinese authorities discussing openly the problems they're having and not uh, subterfuges again. And discussing openly, I got 100,000 participating in a Zoom call. Uh, that's quite unusual. The second point, which is for me, it is even more interesting, is, is that a lot of the media, particularly Bloomberg, have interpreted it as a kind of Likasin uh, moving in a different direction from President Xi, and therefore there is a discord between them. Well, this might have been, uh, let's say, almost pre-planned to show that there is discussion within the government and there is uh, doubts being raised whether the zero COVID is really worth the biscuit, so to speak. If this is not the case, then it is very interesting to see that there is, uh, uh, let's say, open discussion between in, in, within the Communist Party on something which is so important. You know, the more you hide things, the worse they get. That's so the thing. I find this very refreshing, not because they are fighting, not at all, but because there is information in the open. The, the thing that struck out for me in this um, is, is not so mm. much the, these, uh, the, these reports of tensions between Premier Lee and President Xi, but rather um, it looks like the government says it's certainly laying the groundwork for abandoning uh, the GB, GDP growth target of about 5.5%. Uh, well, yes, they, they have not been preparing. They have actually said it repeatedly. Anybody that says it is very unlikely, it will require a lot of hard work, we have to. So the 5% is out, is out of the picture. But mm. this is a fetishistic kind of thing. China, remember now China being the third biggest economy in the world, for it to grow by 5%, it requires an enormous effort. I mean, you have a hell of a big whale, okay, that it's growing at 10%. It won't do that forever, and uh, this might be an interesting break, and it is completely man-made. That's the beauty of it. Mm. This is not markets bringing down China. It is the Communist Party saying, zero COVID, we close it down, and therefore we lose GDP growth. Lovely. David, what, what do you make of this? It seems that the big problem with all of this is all these big speeches and all these plans to try and boost grow, uh, growth. The problem is the zero COVID policy takes priority over all of that, and it's very difficult for the two to coexist together, isn't it? I completely agree. But the big question is how do they get out of the zero COVID policy, and maybe this is the beginning of it. Because you know, if you lock down a city of 25 million people, what are you going to expect? Of course, growth is going to slow. You have supply chain problems, and it leads to you know, actually global uh, global issues as well. And you know, it's, not, it's certainly not helping inflation. Mm. Um, so, I think uh, I'm hoping. You know, I'm not an expert on the subject, but clearly, I'm hoping that this is the beginning of opening up a little bit enabling some travel, some easing the restrictions and, and getting the economy going. Well, what we haven't seen, though, is despite all the talk, hasn't really been much monetary policy easing um, on the mainland. China did cut the five-year loan prime rate, but it left the one-year loan prime rate unchanged when it had an opportunity to cut that as well. So despite what sounds like almost panic now amongst top officials about where the economy is going, um, they're not doing a lot about it, are they? Oh, well, you know, they, they gave some incentives out in, in, in um, Shenzhen, uh, and, and you know, it was mentioned um, you have to buy some, I guess, the token amounts, but they add up to quite a bit. I do think they're going to ease the monetary policy a little bit, but they're they're in a conundrum because the world's uh, going through a big inflationary 
uh, phase mm. right now. So they're rocking a hard place. So they're worried about capital outflows if they ease too much and the, the yuan weakening. Absolutely. Um, uh, people, I, yeah, may, may, may I interject here? I did some back of an envelope calculations of the measures they have taken so far, which apparently add in also the monetary easing in terms of additional funding available to banks to give out for loans, it works out to approximately $400 billion. Okay, now I don't have, of course, the 22 GDP growth, uh, GDP size numbers. I use the 21 size numbers, and it comes out to about 2%. It's not exactly impressive. Okay, but I think that's a very important but. They prefer, if one is a little bit Machiavellian, to regenerate the economy by simply lifting this, for me, always the wrong policy of the zero COVID, rather saying we're going to keep it down to zero and then we're going to pump money and uh, finance uh, incentives as if there is no tomorrow in the hope that on one hand we nailing it down and we, other hand, we are up removing the nails, which again doesn't make any sense. So I like the fact that the injections, they are not really spectacular. Mm. If anything, they are quite modest. And, and also, if you, you can offer all the loans you like, but if you're locked down, businesses don't want them um, or can't take them and con consumers can't spend the money. Also, I have an intense allergy for uh, tax cuts because usually they take about a year to even two years before you see them. Mm. You know, if, if the Congo government tells me we're going to reduce your tax, Andrew, this year from 15 to 10%, I won't see this for another year. <laughs> Well, one thing, David, that Still, my next tax bill comes through. Yeah. <laughs> David, a couple of things that Premier Lee highlighted, which I suppose are a bit of a worry. Um, first of all, the government finances are um, deteriorating quite rapidly as a result of this. Um, and he was basically saying, look, you know, to the local provinces, you can't look towards the central government. You've got to try and raise money yourself. And he also reported that corporate liquidations have surged more than 23% year-on-year in April, particularly among private sector, small and medium-sized enterprises. So it sounds like um, a lot of small businesses now are really on the edge. They're, they're on the verge of closing. Well, I think they've been on the verge of closing for a long time now. Zero COVID and locking down cities can't help. And, of course, the immense expense of the zero-COVID policy of testing everybody, locking down cities, feeding all the people. It's it just I – I don't know how it can go on forever. So at some point, they have to work their way out of it. Mm. What do you make of this Indo-Pacific Economic Forum uh, that President Biden uh, unveiled this week? Thirteen nations in it. Um, it's supposed to be part of a plan uh, to counter China economically and restore U.S. leadership across the region, although it seems pretty modest in its um, aims. Is this something, uh, is this another pact now that we should be watching? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I, obviously, there's a lot of political rhetoric in this, and you have um, different influences. Obviously, you have the U.S. Um, population you have to pander to and the global population. But end of the day, I think competition is good. So if it creates some competition and you, ha and you can open up some manufacturing in, in some of these other countries, mm -hmm. um, it certainly can't help, can't hurt. What these countries want, though, in Asia is to be able to trade more with the U.S., isn't it? Have less uh, impediments to trade, have tariffs removed. It doesn't really do any of that. No, it doesn't. But I, I do think you need – I mean, what, what we've seen the last year is that we're so reliant on a couple of different countries – uh, for global supply chains and um, manufacturing of goods, so spreading some of that out can't hurt. Mm. Andrew, do you think this is a uh, like, significant pact? 
Well, actually, yes, for me, actually, I'm going to spread the apple of dissent here. Is, you know, I looked at the numbers, I looked at the, at the countries participating, and also I'm always totally confused by a lot of initials, okay, of all these uh, uh, trans-Pacific and contra-Pacific and inter-Pacific <laughs> uh, trade rules. And, of course, guess what? Vietnam is a member of it. Wow! Okay, Vietnam is not exactly a fully-fledged liberal uh, democracy, and it fought a bitter war with China, and which it beat China quite badly in the late 70, late uh, 75, 76, I believe it was. It was a border dispute, and of course it has an open dispute over the South China Sea. So it's strangely enough to see a, a country ruled by quite a conservative Communist Party, okay, participating in the so-called encyclement of China. Very interesting. But there are some notable absences. There are some notable absences, aren't there? Laos and Cambodia, which have aligned themselves very closely to China, weren't invited, nor was Taiwan um, either. So there is a political element here. Well, Taiwan, they couldn't really. I mean, they would have been really the, the acme of provo provocation to China. But, uh, yeah, this is, this is as... Uh, uh, as we just heard, this is much more political, let's call it rhetoric posturing, than actual physical uh, things going forward that is going to change a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of the trade flows. Do you think we got too many of these? You've mentioned some of them, the TPP. I know you don't like these initials, but there's the TPP, which morphed <laughs> into the so the CPTPP after the US withdrew. We've got what the RC, the RCEP, the RCEP, which is the chi uh, which China has applied to join. We've also got the Belt and Road Initiative, the Digital Economy Partnership. Absolutely. Uh, there's too many of them, isn't there? And you have, these you have the ASEAN countries. Yes, I agree with you. I, I take I take I take all these things with a huge pinch of salt. Because ultimately, you know, I have, uh, I have this obsession with uh, the famous filmatic expression, show me the money, I want to see what's on the table. And uh, when I begin to delve into it, there's very little. Yeah. Okay, David, let me get your thoughts on what's going on in the markets um, at the moment. We had the Fed minutes uh, this week. It looks like maybe in the US we're going to get the first uh, positive week for, uh, for seven weeks. Well, what's I find a bit startling about how the markets are moving at the moment is the way everything is moving in tandem. When stocks go up, uh, bonds go up, the dollar goes up. When uh, stocks go down, everything else goes down with it as well. There seems to be no benefit from diversification at the moment. Well, I, I guess it's just... You, you see that when there's so much uncertainty in the market, no one knows what's going to, well, people have obviously plans of what's going to happen. What do they think is going to happen with inflation, with the interest rates, um, with the war, the supply chains. So it's just right now you're in a trading market where, you know, you say don't buy the dip, where the retail, you buy a dip, you get hurt two days later. But here you buy the dip, you sell it a day later, you do quite well. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I think this will play out over time and think of, um, you know, big, uh, it's a big wave. It just has to temp temper out. Um, and why are the markets rallying after that Fed meeting? Because it wasn't, uh, it was still quite a hawkish meeting. Well, well the, the minutes of it were. The Fed is clearly going to raise interest rates by 50 basis points at the next couple of meetings. And it was also saying uh, that, that maybe rates will end up higher than the market is anticipating. But yet the market rallied. It's a good question. I, I mean, you had surprisingly strong retail sales that came out. And I think that spurred the market that, well, people are still spending, even though there's inflation out there. Um, and perhaps the bond market is indicating that the interest rates will taper out over time as well. 
um, and maybe they'll get inflation under control. Andrew, were there any surprises for you from the minutes, the Fed minutes? Uh, zero, actually. And uh, as you say, looking back at why are the markets cheering up, uh, if I look at the S&P, the Hansen, the Shanghai, the Euro and the Nikkei, they are all anything between 19 to 15% in US dollar terms down year to date. Mm-hmm. I turn to Asia and hey, Malaysia and Thailand, between them are between 4 and 7% down, half. And of course, Singapore and Jakarta are in US dollar terms up. Mm. Wow. I mean, so not everything. Look, I've given up on uh, on trying to understand the ins and outs, and I'm simply concentrating on particular sectors and where my clients can make money, irrespective of whether the overall indexes go. Okay, and you can ask me about it. Good <laughs> strategy. Thank you very much, Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management. Also with us, David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific and Interactive Brokers. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. I'm joined in the studio now by Peter Sargent, who is Chief Executive Officer of Community Business. Morning, Peter. Good morning. Nice to see you again. Good to um, be here. Tell me about the awards you've just had, haven't you, your annual awards, which have been revamped, I think, haven't they? Yes. From where they, because you used to have separate LGBT awards and then business awards, which mm-hmm. sort of alternated, didn't they? But you yeah, put them all together no, now. Absolutely. And it felt like a, a good juncture for us to do this. We're 20 years old as a non-profit here in Hong Kong next year and we're incredibly proud of our roots here in Hong Kong but it felt like it was time to bust out of the silos that we'd created within the organization we were doing diversity and inclusion awards in India employee well-being awards in Hong Kong and LGBT inclusion awards in Hong Kong but we recognized that each of us are far more intersectional than that we're we're more than just the label and so what Mm. we wanted to do was give companies the opportunity to celebrate particularly at a time when they haven't been able to celebrate and so um, we work with uh, well 60 member companies we probably have twice that in terms of other companies that interact with us across the region and so it was really time to sort of look beyond our borders here in Hong Kong um, and give folks the opportunity to to showcase the great work that they do we work with passionate individuals across industries that focus on diversity and inclusion and employee well-being mm-hmm. but they're often busy working away within their organizations and don't get the opportunity to talk about the fabulous work that they do one of the things that I've noticed in the LGBTQ awards in the past, which were great, great awards, but they tend to be dominated every year by the same companies and <laughs> mainly from uh, the finance and the law firms. Yes. Is that changing? Are we seeing signs Absolutely. of that broadening out and different sectors getting involved and different companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly think um, that post uh, George Floyd and what happened uh, with the terrible situations in the U.S., um, any CEO worth their salt within an organization looked um, to their teams and, and, and said, what do we do about this? What do we say about this? How do, mm-hmm. we, how do we interpret that for the markets that we're operating in? And a lot of them didn't have people working in the diversity and inclusion roles that some of the law firms and banks had. And so there's been a plethora of hiring into that space and there's mm-hmm. been an increased consciousness. But with that has, be- has, has become all these increased um, passions and and conversations that are happening in the region. And so the objective of the award is really to try and surface that 
And so we had applications from Indonesia, from, from markets um, such as Hong Kong and China and Sri Lanka. And we surfaced um, results from companies that, that would really surprise some people. So one of our winners was a tea plantation in Sri Lanka. Mm. And I have to say, out of all the applications we had, and we had hundreds, um, this one was really quite detailed. And the information they put into that was just superb. And, and I, I would argue world class. So how do you select these finalists? Mm. Do they literally stand out at you? Or yeah. is there a process that you go so through? I, to... I think first and foremost, I have to thank our sponsors, because without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. And mm. so applying for an award and nominating someone is free of charge. If you're sponsoring the award, you can't apply for that award. Okay. So we make, we make sure that w what we do is companies that are, that are really quite advanced in this have the opportunity to sponsor an award and pay it forward. And so then when we get the nominations, we go, we call this the most rig rigorous process um, of awards in Asia. And it truly is. And I think, you know, my team will, will, will attest to that, given the amount of work they put into this over the last few months. But every single nomination goes past three sets of eyes at community business who judge those separately. Those three people then come together and look at the scoring that they've, they've done and level the scoring. So then up through those scorings, we get three or four shortlisted nominations and every one of those goes through a panel discussion where they present to the panel which will include two community business representatives one expert judge depending on the topic of that mm -hmm. award and one sponsor judge the sponsor gets to put someone forward as well so they can ensure that the process is working and effectively so if you look at we had 16 awards we had 17 we chose not to run one because uh, there wasn't sufficient nominations and we didn't feel it was fair to to judge in a small pool of nom nominees so if a, if, a, if an award reaches a certain threshold um, it'll go to the panel judge and 16 awards, three or four shortlisted um, candidates for each. That's 50 judging panels that mm. we hosted, each of 45 minutes each. So a lot of a lot of work and rigour that goes into that. So give me a couple of examples of what sort of award categories you have this year. Yes. So, 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 so the one I spoke about, the tea plantation, that was a work-life harmony award. Um, we had um, some of our normal awards like the LGBT Ally in Asia Award, and actually that was a great example. Um, we had a clinician that works for um, a, a, a non-profit here in Hong Kong, and she's told us since then that she's seen a massive increase in, in, in inquiries about work uh, for their company as, as a result okay. of the profile we've given them through this award. Um, we've had a DNI Champions of Change in India. Um, and what's interesting is when we look at the nominees, we've had people with disabilities, we've had trans people, we've had women leaders that perhaps we didn't know about before. So, so what, what I was really quite excited about is that through the people that, that were shortlisted and won these awards, we were able to profile um, women leaders that perhaps people haven't heard of before because they're not uh, so visible in the community. So um, explain a little bit about why diversity and inclusion is important, because this has been a difficult year for many, many businesses mm. in Hong Kong and across the region. Is there evidence that firms that do incorporate principles of diversity and inclusion, look after their employees, um, are emerging from the pandemic in better shape? Well, I, th I think um, we, we, we know that... Um, Smaller communities uh, who are less representative, represented have probably suffered more through the pandemic. Um, so certainly those companies um, that have done well are the ones that have actually doubled their efforts during the pandemic. I think some organisations uh, felt it was too much of a burden to, to focus on certain things. But um, I think the majority of companies that we work with and we see across the region doing good things in this field have actually doubled down.
Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they've moved a lot of things towards uh, the virtual space and they've communicated differently. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Not only um, in terms of shareholder return, but just being the place that people want to come to work. Um, and I think particularly when you look at next generation coming coming out of colleges and schools, they expect companies to have this fixed. And so it's no longer um, something that's nice to do. It's a requirement for job applicants that companies have a good level of understanding around diversity and inclusion and employee well-being. Peter, thank you very much for coming in and telling Absolute us about pleasure. that. That's Peter Sargent, Chief Executive Officer of Community Business. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for uh, this week. The ASX 200 in Australia is up now 1.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has rallied one and a third percent. The Cosby is up over 1% in South Korea. Uh, futures markets pointed to a gain of about 470 points for the Hang Seng at the moment. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Stay tuned for the news and COVID updates with Janice Wong and Andrew Work immediately afterwards. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, occasional showers and a few thunderstorms. The maximum temperature is going to be around 29 degrees. There's going to be a few showers tomorrow, hot with sunny periods in the following few days. There is a thunderstorm warning in force right now. 27 degrees, 93% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Trade unions representing drivers of KMB and Long Wind buses are demanding a 7% pay rise. Speaking after a meeting with management, Lai Su Chung from the Motor Transport Workers General Union said inflation was pushing up daily expenses. He also pointed out that some civil servants are in line for rises of more than 7%. However, he said management had told him passenger numbers and revenues had plummeted since the launch of new MTR lines. The president-elect of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., has insisted that he won't let Beijing interfere in what he called his country's economic rights in the South China Sea. Mr. Marcos cited an international court of arbitration ruling that struck out China's claim. We will use it to uh, continue to assert our territorial rights. It's not a claim. It is already our territorial right. And that is what the arbitral ruling can do to help us. The outgoing president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, had set aside the ruling in return for promises of trade and investment from China. The Ukrainian Foreign Minister, Dmitry Kuleba, says the situation in the east of his country is worse than people understand. Mr. Kuleba once again made a plea for more Western support against Russian forces, saying Ukraine was in desperate need of heavy weapons. We need heavy weapons. The only position where Russia is better than us, it's the amount of heavy weapons they have. Without artillery, without multiple launch rocket systems, we won't be able to push them back. If you really care for Ukraine, if you want Ukraine to deoccupy its territories, send us multiple launch rocket systems as soon as possible. Police in Texas are facing criticism for how they responded to the mass shooting at a school in Uvalde on Tuesday. Some parents say police officers appeared hesitant to confront the 18-year-old gunman after he barricaded himself inside a classroom. A number of them offered to rush inside with the officers to stop the shooter. He killed 19 children and two teachers in the space of up to an hour before he himself was shot dead. Victor Escalon from the Texas Department of Public Safety said officers engaged immediately, forcibly entering the classroom to kill the gunman. Officers are there, the initial officers, they receive gunfire. 
They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. But we have officers calling for additional resources. Everybody that's in the area, tactical teams. We need equipment. We need specialty equipment. We need body armor. We need precision riflemen, negotiators. So during this time that they're making those calls to bring in help to solve this problem and stop it immediately. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to 